0: Thank you for listening to the Sharing Church Podcast. If you would like to know more about the church, please visit us at sharingchurch.com. Now, we hope you learned from and enjoy today's message. If you want to grab your Bibles or grab your devices and turn to the book of Ruth, I'm going to give you some time. Uh, Look in the table of contents if you need to. There's no shame here. Uh, Just find the book of Ruth wherever and however you can. Uh, Being that it's Father's Day, we thought it would be fitting to start a study on the book of a Bible named after a woman, and we're going to use pink as our graphic. Uh, Happy Father's Day to all of you. Glad that you are here today. We're going to study this book of Ruth over the next six weeks. Um, We believe in teaching the Bible exegetically. We want to teach it verse by verse. We want to study the context of the scripture because what's happened for many of us, and maybe you, you were in church, then you were out of church, and you got burnt by a church somehow. I'm gonna, I guarantee you, the way you were burnt by a church is because somebody took a verse out of context and made it mean something it doesn't mean, and you were offended by that. And You, could, you didn't know exactly what was wrong, but you knew something didn't add up. That's what didn't add up. The Word of God wasn't taught, so we're gonna teach the Word of God, and we're gonna study this book of Ruth for the next uh, six weeks over the summer, and then we've got some uh, things, Lord willing, uh, that we've got planned uh, for the fall as well. We're looking forward to this, so I hope you found it. If not, seriously, table of contents, ask your neighbor, um, totally fine. We're all friends here. The book of Ruth is one of two uh, books in the Bible named after women, Uh, Ruth, and the other one is Esther. Ruth um, is not a Hebrew woman. The Old Testament is written primarily to Hebrews, to Jews, about their God, Jehovah, Yahweh. But this book exists in kind of its own little place, it seems like, because it's written about a woman named Ruth, who is a Moabite. Now, Moabites and Jews, Hebrews, Israelites, hate each other. I mean, despise each other. It goes all the way back to something that happened uh, in the book of Genesis, which we have kids in here, so I can't get into too much detail about it, but uh, it's, not, it's, it's not network TV kind of stuff. So that's what happened. A whole thing has happened, and it's, just, it's been drama since then. But it's interesting, this book, where it's situated... We get confused with Scripture because we feel like, and maybe rightfully so, that if we were going to write a book about God, you would write it chronologically. Wouldn't you write it in order? Anybody else? If you wrote a book about God, you'd make it make sense, right? Yeah. Well, God didn't do that. So God didn't put it in order for us in the way that they have created what's called the canon of Scripture. It's laid out a bit differently, which is why you can't read the Bible like you would read um, a magazine or a news feed or a social media feed or a book. It doesn't read like that. It's what's called meditation literature, which means you have to take some time with it. You have to let it marinate a bit to get all the flavors in. And if we're being honest, that's why many of us don't read the Bible, because we don't have that kind of time. I would just challenge you to see how far you've gotten to this series on Netflix, and then I'll ask you again, do you have the time? To read the Bible, it takes some time it also sometimes takes a teacher. It takes someone to, uh, with the gift of teaching or even the gift of prophecy to unpack Scripture, which is the beauty of church and the beauty of community. How many of you parents have said this phrase to your kids, I'll tell you when you're older? Have you ever said that to your kids? Only six of us. You're all liars because you have. <laughs> kids love that uh, because that's, that's what we love. We, we love delayed gratification. We all love that. Oh, when I'm older? Great. Then I'll just wait patiently until you tell me why it is that way. Um, We have uh, three kids, Meredith and I, and um, a 12-year-old, eight-year-old, and a five-year-old, and they're all wired differently, um, but they're all very inquisitive, which I thought I would love before I had kids. Now I'm tired of it. I'm just tired of it. Uh, The whys that happen all the time, and it's a gift. It's great. I love them. It's awful, but it's awesome at the same time. Um, And so my boys are, they're wired completely differently. Maybe you have kids and you can understand some of this. So if I'm working on something in the garage or I'm building something and I say um, to my oldest, hey, bring me the monkey wrench. Uh, He will grab a wrench and then bring it to me and he will never once admit he doesn't know what a monkey wrench is. Anybody else have kids like that? Are any of you like that? You are. You fake it till you make it, people. That's who you are. You're not gonna admit you don't know. You're just gonna oh, yeah. Is this it? I'm like that's nope. That's not it. Is it nope? Well, well, I read I read this was a monkey wrench. Did you know that this should actually be called a monkey wrench? That in Latin the word for monkey wrench just means silver, and so that's why I brought this one to you. <laughs> then we've got another one. This we're working on things in the garage, and I'll ask him to bring me a monkey wrench. He'll be like, you said monkey. And then he will just act like a monkey and completely forget to bring me the wrench. Anybody else have kids like that? Yep, right. And then there are times um, for us when we'll sit down for a meal, especially at a holiday when when you or your spouse or family has just spent hours in the kitchen making a meal. Then our kids will sit down and be completely disgusted over everything on the table. And what they want is a happy meal. Or I I just wanted macaroni and cheese. Well, there is macaroni and cheese. It's in the crock pot. It's macaroni, and it actually, the cheese, like, it comes with you when you take it. It's so good. You need to have that. It's like, no, 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 I I want the one in the blue box. Can we have the one in the blue box? (laughs) The one with the fake cheese that's powdered? That's what I want. I want that one. And then you try to explain, do you know how long your mom worked to cook this meal? Do you know how long? Like, sure. So it feels like the Craft would have been a lot easier then. Like, why are you telling me this, Dad? Because it feels like we really have a miscommunication here as far as what I want and the amount of time it takes to be there. As parents, there are things for us that that we know more than our kids know. I know you don't believe that, kids, but there are things that we know uh, more than you know. And it's just because of experience that we know these things. We have experience, and for some of us, when it comes to um, budgets, when it comes to finances. To try to explain to your five or eight-year-old why they can't have the new PlayStation, um, even though they just got something else, or because uh, you don't have the finances, or because you are still paying for their braces. Whatever it is, you have to explain these things. It's like they don't get it. But as parents, what happens for us is we sit above them, both in authority, but also in perspective. And as parents, we have a perspective over our household that often the children just don't have. Isn't that right? Is that right, parents? You can say amen. You can say it loudly, and you can let your kids know. That's biblical, by the way. But we do. What we're going to see here in the book of Ruth is that God is like that to us, that God has a perspective, a higher plane than we do, and he sees things differently than we do. And he knows where he has placed things in the universe and in the world that he will get at certain times for you, that he will bring in front of you. But now is not the time. And he knows why, that if he moves this from here, then this has to happen. And he understands how the universe works. And he understands that we are part of that universe. And he loves us. So we're going to study over the next few weeks this book of Ruth. If that's not exciting to you, it should be, because my prayer is that the Spirit will make that exciting to you to study this book. We're gonna study this book, and what's interesting about the book of Ruth is that it doesn't follow chronologically. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. And I used to think it just meant that Joshua judges Ruth, which feels like a very anti-Christian thing for Joshua to be doing to Ruth, I'm pretty sure what the Bible says. And so, um, but Ruth is situated not after the book of Judges, but right in the middle of the book of Judges. And the period of Judges, about 180 years, is some of the darkest times for the people of God. And not because of anyone else's fault, but their own. And this is where the book of Ruth is situated. So I just wanna study verses one through five today of Ruth chapter one, but I want to, what I wanna do is put it all in the context of scripture. And my hope is that we have an understanding that this Bible, this book, is one unified story pointing to Jesus, that even the book of Ruth is not as much about Ruth as it is about Jesus. Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. If you're taking notes and you have your Bible, underline, highlight some of these words. Pay attention to some of the dark, depressing words that are used here. In the day the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem, that should sound familiar to you, even though it's not December, that should still ring a bell. Christmas bells, okay. Uh, In Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. To sojourn means that they traveled, but not as a vacation, there was intent to their traveling. They are visitors, they're foreigners in the country of Moab. He, this man and his wife, and his two sons. So family of four, husband, wife, two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And we'll get to that here in a second. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained. They stayed there. They went to sojourn. They went for a season because there was famine in their land, and yet they stayed in Moab. They remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Kilion died, and so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This happens in the period of the judges, and then, then do you see how depressing their life is at this point? There's a famine in the land. They are in what's called the promised land, Canaan, the land that God had promised to his people, a land flowing with milk and honey. This was the promised land. This was Canaan. It's, it's fertile land. It's beautiful. It has everything they could ever want. After wandering in the desert for uh, a number of years, they needed this. And so this is where God had called them. This is where he'd promised them. He'd given them this land. But there's a famine here. There's a famine in a town. These people are from a town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. There is no bread In the house of bread. Now, we don't really understand the depths of famine. Um, We say we're starving if we've only had three meals today. I'm starving. We're not starving. Trust me, we're not starving. But famine, there's literally nothing. Crops aren't yielding anything. Meat has gone bad. Water has dried up. Trees have dried up. There's famine. In Bethlehem, the house of bread, there is famine. So they go to Moab, a man and his wife and their two kids. And while they're in Moab, the boys get married and then they die. Dark, depressing lives that some of us in the room have lived, haven't we? Lived, it just feels like it's one hit after another. Nothing seems to be adding up. This is where we find ourselves. So with any story, we have to first figure out the setting. So three elements of story we're going to look at today are the who, the where, and the when. So I want to give us a setting. So let's first talk about the who. The husband's name is Elimelech. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. This is Elimelech. A Hebrew man, an Israelite man from Ephrathah in Judah. So a, a place of devout followers of Jesus. Later would be known for the birthplace of Jesus as Bethlehem. Elimelech means my God is king. His wife is named Naomi, and her name means lovely or pleasant is what her name would have meant. So uh, this is a power couple, isn't it? Like God is my king and lovely. They probably had some weird benefer kind of combination of names probably um, back then. This is, they seem devoted to the Lord. She's lovely. She's delightful. She's a Proverbs 31 kind of a woman. They give birth to two boys, Malon, whose name means sickly. My God is king and lovely. Give birth to sickly. Not really how we saw the story going, is it? The next boy, Kilion, his name means wasting away. Things went from that wedding day of my God is king and lovely. Things went from that day to what seems to be just one hardship after another. Scholars would tell us it's probably apparent by their names that these boys had some kind of terminal disease. They had something that just wasn't working for them. They weren't healthy. Yet they reached an age and they got married. And they got married to two women who were Moabites. They were in Moab and they met these two women. And we'll talk more about this next week. But um, Moabite women were known for seducing Israelite men and making Israelite men worship their gods. Um, Not the kind of women you bring home to mama. But they marry a Moabite woman. First one, whose name is Orpah, her name means turned back. It's the Hebrew word for gazelle, or gazelles in their neck is the idea, but a gazelle's neck is always turned back, was the understanding here. Her name means turned back or stubborn. The other wife, uh, daughter in law, her name is Ruth, which means friend. So I think we all know who the hero is, don't we? And I think we figured out um, why they named it Ruth instead of Orpah or Wasting Away. Read the book of Wasting Away. It's an uplifting tale of marriage. No, it's not. So Ruth is a friend. These are the characters. That we'll meet more later, but these are the ones that are listed for us here. Elimelech has died in the land of Moab, leaving his wife Naomi as a widow in a foreign land. But at least she's got her son-in-laws to care for her except that she doesn't because they also pass away. Her sons sons pass away. She's left with two Moabite daughters-in-law. This is where our story begins. And in the Hebrew, verses three through five, uh, read more like a box score of a game than of a novel. It's just fact after fact after fact. These are the characters in our story. Now let's talk about where. So I think... uh, it says in verse one, in the days of Judges, there ruled, or there was a famine in the land when a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So I've got a map uh, for us just to get our bearing a bit, just so we know, because I think we read these words. And if you've grown up in church, um, you have to pretend like you know where these places are, don't you? Like, sure, I've heard of that. I, I've been there. Uh, so here's, this is this area. So you see the promised land rests along the Mediterranean Sea. So fertile farmland, uh, beautiful. It's the land that every country wanted, and God gave it to them. Now, in the promised land is an area called Philistia, or the Philistine states, which is where we meet the Philistines, of which you might know Goliath was a Philistine. You see the Sea of Galilee at the top is where Jesus did most of his ministry in the New Testament. You've got Aram-Damascus, which is where the little town of Damascus is, where Saul was on his way there in the New Testament before he met Jesus. Underneath that, you've got a region called Ammon, where we learn of the Ammonites. That'll come up in other Old Testament books. At the very bottom is Edom, which is where we hear of the Edomites. Now, these are all uh, pagan countries. They don't worship the God of Israel. They have their own gods. They have gods of fertility. They have gods of the harvest, gods of the sun, gods of the moon. This is who they are. And then you see Moab there in the purple. This is Moab. Now, between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee is what's called the River Jordan, the Jordan River, which is where the people of God had to cross the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land. Elimelech and his family have gone from the Promised Land. Bethlehem would have been in the north section of the Promised Land. They would have crossed the Jordan River. And traveled down to Moab, probably 60 miles or so walking. And they've gone here because what was once fertile land in the promised land is no longer fertile, it's a famine. And so they've done, like we would do as a father and a husband, I'm going to go find food for my family, aren't you? It's not sinful. So they leave and go to Moab uh, to try to find some food for their family. This is where all this is happening in Moab next to the Dead Sea. Moabites, if you read back in the book of Genesis again, began because Abraham's cousin Lot, uh, there's some issues there. Kids are in the room. You can read it in Genesis. Uh, I think it begins in 19. This is where uh, some things happen. And so there's a family line that's split, um, but it's dark. So it creates Moabites here in the land of Moab. This is the where. Where? Okay. Now let's talk when. This is what's important. Ruth chapter one, verse one says, in the days when the judges ruled. So I want to put this in context for us as quickly as I can. I've got pictures to help. um, Hopefully will help us. But uh, Hebrew chronology, Hebrew literature, it's all based on who was leading at the time. So you'll have an era of Abraham, era of uh, Jacob, or the time when Jacob, or whatever. Much like for us, um, that we remember when certain presidents had the presidency, under the, under the Reagan presidency, under the Lincoln presidency. That's, that's how we do things a lot of times in America. Same thing here uh, for the Hebrews. So let's begin with this. You're going to meet Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Abraham, his father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. This is church joke, I'm sorry. Um, so here's Abraham. He's the father of many nations. God had promised to Abram, then would change his name to Abraham, that he would bless him with a lineage. Abraham and his wife are barren, have no children. And there, God promises Abraham that he's going to have a son, and from this son would come the savior of the world. The problem is, they can't have kids. And so as Abraham and Sarah get older in life, Abraham figures out a plan. Sarah figures out a plan for Abraham uh, to have a baby, uh, not through her, but through a friend of hers, through a servant. And so that happens, and there's all stuff that happens there. God gives Abraham and Sarah a son by the name of Isaac, the next patriarch. Abraham give, and has a son named Isaac. Isaac's name means laughter, because they were so old when they had him, all they could do was laugh. That's why. That's why it's called laughter. So that's Isaac. Abraham's son is named Isaac. Some of you might remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God calls Isaac to go up a hill to test his faith and calls him to sacrifice his only son, the one that God had promised and through which would come the Savior of the world. And so that story, we'll talk about that here in a bit. Isaac and his wife uh, have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob then comes next in this lineage. A whole twisted Jerry Springer story happens there too, um, which is a lot of the Old Testament, which should give hope to all of us, shouldn't it? Right? Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not perfect people. They're not great fathers and husbands. And yet God saw fit to use them to bring Jesus to us. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. That's all I'm going to say about it, 12, 12. he had 12. So 12 sons, um, then from the 12 sons, we would get the 12 tribes of Israel and all that. So progress is happening in the Old Testament. Jacob has these 12 sons. In the next slide, um, among these 12 sons was a boy by the name of Joseph. Joseph, the one with the technicolor dream coat, that Joseph. Joseph is um, his, the favorite of his father, Jacob. And he gets a coat of many colors, His 11 brothers beat him up, leave him for dead. He is found uh, almost dead and is taken then um, to serve in Egypt. So, from Joseph, then, uh, next is where we meet Moses. Joseph is serving in Egypt. There's a famine in the land. His brothers come back to Egypt, and the people of God now are in Egypt kind of an enemy of the people of God. They're in Egypt because of the famine in their land. And Pharaoh has recognized that the Israelites are growing in number because apparently they like to have 12 kids in their family. And so that multiplies quickly. And so as that is happening, uh, they're making bricks. And so they have to figure out something to do. And so they make babies. And so that happens. Israelites are growing in number. And Pharaoh recognizes they're a threat to me. So Pharaoh says, hey, the first born male of every family. When he is born, will kill him. Let's just do that. Pharaoh's a very nice man. And so that's what he decides, uh, the king of Egypt decides to do. But you might know this story of Moses, born to Hebrew parents. is placed in a reed basket and then floated down the river. Now, he is found um, by Pharaoh's daughter, or a servant brought to Pharaoh's daughter, They need somebody to breastfeed this boy to bring him to health, and who else but Moses' mom to come do that. In in Pharaoh's home, this happens. God, working all these things out, so we find Moses. Moses uh, comes to power there in Egypt, gets like second to the throne. He's watching his Israelite brothers and sisters and cousins and relatives being beaten because they're not making enough bricks. Moses takes it upon himself to go out To to, uh, set them to care for them, to defend them. He kills an Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and then runs to the desert. Again, Old Testament is not full of uh, real clean characters. Moses runs into the wilderness where he gets married, is working for his father in law, which seems like maybe not the best situation for a lot of us, but he's working for his father in law on the backside of a mountain caring for sheep, not even the good sheep, but the bad sheep. That's why they're on the back side of the mountain, because nobody wants to see those sheep. And so he's caring for them. And God speaks to him in a burning bush at the base of a mountain. And God calls Moses, who would be next of the patriarchs, to set his people free from slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, can't do it. He gives him five excuses. says, I'll go, but only if I can take Joshua with me. And we read in the Old Testament, God is actually angry that Moses won't just go. But he gives him Joshua. So then we meet Joshua. Joshua partners with Moses to help set the people free from slavery in Egypt. He sets them free with the 10 plagues, the 10th being the plague of the firstborn, where if you did not put the blood of a lamb over the doorpost of your home, the angel of death would come and would take your firstborn. And so God says to Pharaoh, I'll see your plague and I'll up you this one. Egyptians are fearful, Uh, Israelites run, Uh, they're set free, they run, Egyptians chase after them at the Red Sea, God parts the Red Sea, now they wander in the wilderness and Moses leads them there. Moses, uh, you can set the man free from Egypt, it's harder to get the Egypt out of the man and so Moses still has some of those tendencies of anger within him and he sins against the Lord and the consequence is that Moses can't lead his people into the promised land now. So the book of Deuteronomy is Moses on the Jordan River. Deuteronomy means second telling. And he's telling the Israelites the law for the second time, saying, hey, you're going to get in here and things are going to be amazing. Do not forget, it's the Lord your God who set you free from slavery in Egypt. It's him who set you on eagle's wings. It's him. Don't forget it. When you get in there, you're going to think you deserve it. Don't forget, you don't deserve this. God is giving this to you. So Joshua leads them into the promised land. And while they're there, they're gonna have to face uh, Canaanite armies and different kinds of armies and they do the best that they can, but uh, they struggle a bit. And over time, uh, the people of God just can't seem to get out of their own way. Joshua dies at the end of Joshua, the beginning of Judges. And then we step into what's called this period of the Judges. Hopefully you're still with me. The judges um, are not like we consider judges, they don't have black robes and curly gray hair and gavels. Um, the judges I want, think more of someone who fights for justice. So they're a warrior. They're not kings, they don't have political authority, but their job is to defend the people of God. That's their job. The tribes have different areas, and so they appoint judges and the book of Judges, which comes right before Ruth, is just a disturbing, dark tale of the poverty of pe- the people of God's souls. It just gets darker and darker and darker and darker. It's just awful. They are giving themselves to other gods. They're giving themselves to uh, worshiping other gods. They are um, pursuing their senses as opposed to what God has called them to be. And in Judges 21, 25, here's how the book of Judges defines this period. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because that's the point. The period of Judges, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, we're living that too no truth anymore. There's nothing uh, from God that determines truth anymore. Now we just function according to our own wants and desires. We all do what's right in our own eyes. So this cycle happens in the book of Judges, which I want to show to you here, just to show you how dark this time is. The people of God sin, they begin worshiping other gods. That's up at the top. And because of that, then the consequence of that is oppression of foreign lands. And so God allows foreign lands to come in. The Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites. And they all come in and they overtake the people of God. And they oppress them. Remember, they were back in Egypt being oppressed for 400 years. And God set them free. But it's like they can't get out of their own way. And so um, they would sin. There would be oppression. The people of God would then repent. They would cry out to God for help. They would repent And so God, doing what he does, would deliver his people by raising up a judge. And he'd raise up a judge to deliver them and set them free. And when that happened, would create a period of peace. The problem for you and for me and for the people in the book of Judges is we don't know what to do with peace. We don't know how to steward that well because prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And so peace would lead them into thinking that they had accomplished something which would lead them into more sin which would then lead them into oppression and then repentance. And then God would deliver them through a judge. They'd find peace and then more sin. But the cycle would get deeper and deeper and deeper. It's almost like with every cycle, uh, the edges of the house of God were getting beaten off. And you can relate to that, can't you? Because the more you've walked this cycle of sin, the more you've personally realized how deeply you've gotten into it that you had no idea you could get to this place. And sure, you've repented, you went to camp, and you've done the things, and and then you had peace, you had a good few weeks, and then it's like, now it's worse sin. And then worse and worse. This is the period of the judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and there is chaos in the world. Dark, disgusting chaos in the world. And yet God gives us the book of Ruth, and in the book of Ruth, there's no enemy. In the book of Ruth, everyone is an upright character. In the book of Ruth, uh, we find hope. In the book of Ruth, it's a complete antithesis to the book of Judges. But it's happening in the middle of Judges. In the midst of chaos and despair... God gives us the book of Ruth to point to the presence of God's goodness even in the midst of evil. So here's my hope for us today just as we wrap up quickly. I know that the past year, year and a half for many of us has been some of the darkest times of our lives. And not even because of what's happening in the world but because of what that has caused inside of us. Some of us are walking through extreme grief. Some of us are walking through extreme pain. Some of us have are walking in pain that we've created. Some of us are walking in seasons of anxiety we never thought we would wrestle with. And the book of Ruth reminds us that God is present even then. And he's working even then. There's a theologian, uh, author by the name of A.W. Tozer, who has this line, which is gonna be important for us this morning. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you think about God, what comes into your mind? And some of that's going to be based on experience. For some of us, when we think about God, we think about his goodness and his blessing. And for some of us, we think he's just an angry dictator who can't wait to kill us all. Who's angry with us and disappointed with us. And however we filter the character of God then determines how we filter what he is doing or isn't doing in our lives today. The book of Ruth is meant to point us, when we think about God, to think about his goodness, to think about his presence in every circumstance. We think, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, there's a theological concept called providence. This is the providence of God. You've got the sovereignty of God, which is his power and his might. And you've got the goodness of God, which is his mercy and loving kindness. And in the middle, we have what scholars call providence. Now, providence um, is a word that we're going to have to unpack just to give a definition to it. You'll notice that the word providence is the word provide. P-R-O-V-I-D-E. Provide is inside of the word providence. The Latin word provide is with a prefix and then a suffix. The prefix, the first part of the word, is the word pro. And the word pro means for or to or toward. And then vide or vide means to see or have a vision of. It's where we get the word video. Pro, to, toward, for, vide, see, vision, or the idea for us then is video. The word provide really has nothing to do uh, at its base level of actually giving us anything. The idea of provide and God's providence is that he sees toward, or he sees to, or he pre-sees, or he foresees. He foresees. He sees toward, which is confusing. So luckily... We have an English phrase that helps us with this, and it's the phrase, see to it. Providence of God is quickly summed up in this. He will see to it. He will see to it. This is the providence of God. It's his goodness mixed with his power that he will see to it. We just sang a song called Jireh, and Joel talked about it. Jireh is a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word means to see. In the Old Testament, they would call God Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. And all they're saying is, well, God sees. Yeah, God sees it. God sees. God sees you. God sees me. God sees. I don't know if you have kids or family members like this, but if there's a piece of trash on the ground or something that needs to be picked up, um, my kids see it, and then they just keep walking. Anybody else have kids like that? He saw it. She saw it, but they're not going to do anything about it. And that's what we think about God, isn't it? Well, God sees, but he sure didn't step in. I mean, God saw me in the worst moments of my life, but it seems like he could care less about me. The Old Testament uh, writers, when they would call God Jehovah Jireh, what they mean is if God sees it, he will see to it. If he sees it, he sees to it. He hears the cries of his people. When the cries of his people rise up to God, he sees it, and he will see to it. The book of Ruth is meant to remind us that God sees, and he's seeing to it. You can trust him. Yeah, there's famine. Yeah, there's death. He's sickly. He's wasting away. God sees, and he's seeing to it, and you can trust his hand. But the book of Ruth is going to remind us of something. That just because we can't see the harvest doesn't mean that God hasn't planted seeds. Just because right now it feels like there's nothing coming doesn't mean that God hasn't already planted the seed of the grain. He hasn't planted the seed of the barley harvest. He's planted it. The providence of God began in the past to be ready in the present to bless the future. The providence of God means that he saw it before you saw it, and he's going to see to it before you even have the ability to see to it. He's planted the seed. And in due time, the harvest is coming. So right now. I don't know where you find yourself. If you find yourself almost in the period of Judges and you feel it's just one depressing thing after another, I need to tell you something about the character of God. He sees it. He will see to it. He's planted the seed in the past. It will be ready when it needs to be ready, and it will bless the future. This is the goodness of God. I know that in between uh, the planting and the harvesting feels like a long time. But you can trust the hand of God. The providence of God already planted the seed. It's coming. It's coming. We see it here in the story of Ruth, but we've seen it throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve sin, they try to cover their sin with fig leaves, but God gives them animal skins to cover their sin to foreshadow the coming of Jesus. But you know when God created the animals? In the first week of creation. Abraham calls Isaac to go up a mountain to sacrifice his son, and he gets up there and is about to be obedient to the Lord. The Lord provides what uh, the scholars tell us was a ram caught in the thicket. The word provide is the word gyro. The Lord gyroed a lamb, a ram caught in the thicket. When did the ram get there? I don't know, but he had to walk up the mountain, and he had to be born, which means that God had that ram in mind Years before, and sent him up this mountain to that thicket at that time. He planted the seed, and now it's time for the harvest. He sent Joseph to Egypt. How? By being beaten by his brothers. And yet, because Joseph was in Egypt, his brothers came in the time of famine and they were fed. God didn't just miraculously drop Joseph out of the sky, God had Joseph be born. He was one of 12 sons. His brothers hated him that he might get to Egypt, that he might redeem his brothers. Moses placed in a basket that he would float down the river to happen to be found by people in Pharaoh's household. Why were they at the river? Because of God's providence. Why that day? Because of God's providence. Because he planted the seed and now it's the time of harvest. Moses hears from the Lord at a burning bush at the base of a mountain. You know how long it takes for a bush to grow? Me neither, but it's a long time. God planted the seed of that bush, knowing that bush would be the one that would burn, that Moses then would see God and hear from him, that he might go set his people free. And why was Moses back there? Because he killed a man and he ran. Why? Because of God's providence. And then Jesus comes born in a town of Bethlehem. Why? God's providence. In the midst of the time of waiting between the planting and the harvesting, we can trust the hand of God. He's working while we're waiting, and the book of Ruth is evidence of it. In the darkest season of the Israelites' life, God had a plan, and he was working that plan. Even though you couldn't see it, he was working that plan. For a number of years in ancient church history, and even today, children are given what's called catechism, they're catechized, number of questions that they are asked, that they then have to memorize truths about God. And I'll just say, we've missed that in the modern church. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 27 says, what do you understand about the providence of God? And here's the answer about the providence of God. The almighty everywhere, present power of God, whereby by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that, herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What a powerful last line. His fatherly hand. I don't know your experience with fathers, but God's better than that. He's perfect in every way. By his caring, compassionate, powerful hand, he does all things. This is the providence of God. It's for our good. Isaiah 55, God says that my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's like God saying, I'll tell you when you're older. Just trust me. Trust that I know. Well, why this sickness? Why this pain? Why is my business um, falling apart? Why why did you call us to this? And yet it feels like one delay after another, after another, after another. You wanna know why? Because of God's providence. One of our elders, Roger Wilson, um, started a barbecue restaurant, planned on it, got pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And then he found out that as he was opening this restaurant, the bridge out here towards Covington would have been taken out. And Roger's like, how am I, what, what? What Raji would tell you is because of that, uh, the traffic had slowed down, and Raji had a chance to get his bearings in a business he knew nothing about, so that when that bridge opens up, he'll have his systems in place. Why? Because of the providence of God. The providence of God. His ways are higher than ours. Tim Keller says this, that if we knew all God knows, we would ask for exactly what he gives If we knew what God knows, we'd ask for the exact same thing He's given us. We'd ask for our parents. We'd ask for our kids. We'd ask for our infertility. We would ask for that disease and that cancer and that pain. We would ask for it because in that God has accomplished His will. He is providential. So, what do we do? Well, we, according to Proverbs chapter 3, we trust in the Lord with all of our heart and we don't lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, we acknowledge him and he'll make, our straight, he'll make straight our paths. And I love this. Be, wise, be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord, respect the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Why trust God? Because it will heal your flesh and refresh your bones. We tell our kids this all the time. Let me be the dad. You can be his brother. Let's just let God be God. That we can trust him even in the period of the judges.